If I have not had the privilege of meeting you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King. Uh, I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us at our Ferndale campus and those who are watching online as well. We're just glad that you've chosen to be a part of our church family. A uh, big question of the week has been, how are we going to respond to the tragedy that is happening in Japan? I want to give you two uh, websites that you can go to if you feel led to give immediately. These are groups that we work with and know very, very well. Samaritanspurse.org and ChurchesHelpingChurches.org. Those two groups are on the ground over there. We have personal relationship with them. We've worked with them before. We know that any donation you might make will go into the real practical needs that are being met over there. Speaking of practical needs, over the past couple of months, we have been uh, working on a project called Project Homeless Connect. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, a group of people from Christ the King took brand new sleeping bags and tents and tarps, and we distributed them to some of our uh, homeless brothers and sisters that kind of live here in this area. I got a letter this past week from the, the person who leads this amazing, uh, amazing opportunity to touch people. She wrote this, Dear members of Christ the King Community Church, I'm writing to express our heartfelt thanks for the incredible and generous donations you made to Project Homeless Connect. It was a pleasure working with Tracy Whitehead, Tom Starbuck, and we, while we figured CTK would do a successful drive for the project, we were truly amazed at the outpouring of support for the homeless guests that we served on March the 3rd. You made us proud to live in such a generous county, and that you so beautifully took up the call to help those in need. Our guests were so pleased to receive the items you donated, which have never been available at past events. The amount of tents, sleeping bags, tarps, towels, backpacks, and other items you donated were a huge hit. And our guests left feeling like this community really does care about their well-being. When you combine your donations with the other services we were able to offer, we were happy to say we had a very successful event. Many, many, many thanks to you, Anne Bright, on behalf of the Project Homeless Connect Steering Committee. You did it, church. You touched your community in Jesus' name, and that's an awesome thing. Awesome thing. We've come a long way on the road out. We've seen God respond to his people who were in captivity. We've seen God get his people out and we've seen God get his people through. We've seen God's patience and his justice as he's dealt with his people. And last week, we saw God's love expressed in the form of the Ten Commandments. And we saw how people struggle when somebody comes along and says, I expect this of you. The first two commandments from last week play a huge part in this week's story. So let's go back before we go forward. Last week... On the road out in Exodus 20, we read these two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, you read those verses and it seems pretty clear to me. No other gods and no idols. That's the bottom line. But in a, an amazing display of irony, while Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, is up on the mountain taking dictation from God, the people of Israel are down in the valley getting into trouble. The Bible says this is what happens while Moses is up on the mountain. The Bible says, when the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, 
Take off the gold earrings your wives, sons, and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with the tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, who thinks the Israelites are idiots at this point? I mean, seriously, right? A gold cow? You just walked through a sea on dry land and you just exchanged it for a bovine animal. Not even a real one. A gold one. I mean, seriously, are you kidding me? Let's not judge too quickly. I'm going to get some mail on this one this week. I'm telling you right now. I mean, just think about it. In this very real moment, God seems distant. Their leader has disappeared. And so in response, they just turn their attention to something else. They create something that fills a void in their heart. They create something that that takes away some of the loneliness. They create a functional savior with their own hands that they hope is going to bring them some help. They turn their eyes from God and they look to another source for comfort. This is where it gets really, really uncomfortable. Because we love pointing out the idols in other cultures and belief systems, but we do not like it when somebody calls it out in ours. We love talking about the golden calves and the shrines in other people's lives, and we shake our heads and wonder, how can they be so blind? And then we cringe when the Holy Spirit starts pointing out our idols. We have no problem pointing to the shrines of India, but when somebody asks a question about Quest Field, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You back up, pastor. You leave my Sunday afternoons alone. We're not really going to go there, are we? I mean, we see pictures of painted natives, and we think to ourselves, wow, how in the world could that possibly be? And then we go to a Seahawks game, And we sit next to this guy who sits outside without a shirt in 30 degree weather and we go, that's normal. What's the problem with that? Seriously? We have no problem pointing to the idols of cultures in the Brazilian rainforest, but when we address the idol of entertainment in our own culture, it's like, hey Grant, you better just back off. You mind your own business and you leave my television alone. Maybe not. As Christians, we know we're not supposed to have idols, so our response is to often ignore and try to hide the ones that we have. You know, this account of the golden calf is a tough one. It would be easy to explain away if it was the pagans that had the idol, but it's not. The people of God have the idol in the story in Exodus 32. So I guess we better have this discussion. Let's start with a question. How do I identify an idol? How do I know? Some of you are like, you're going to pick on football, aren't you? No. Let's just have an open mind and walk through this together. How do I identify an idol? Well, let's start with a simple definition. An idol is anything in my life that competes with God. Anything. The easy idols to to, to look at are, are are the big negative ones, right? Addictions or obsessions. Those are easy to identify as an idol. But they can also be good things that we turn into a little G God thing because we give it all of our attention. An idol can be food, it can be money, it can be a job, it can be a person, it can be a relationship, it can be a quest for acceptance, it can be a vehicle, it can be an office, it could be a title that you get because you've got the office. It can be anything 
that draws us to pursue it and worship it and give attention to it and then nurture it. An idol is anything in my life that competes with God. My idol can be this church if I let it be. I mean, CTK is a very, very good thing, but it can become a little G God thing in my life instantly if I don't keep it in perspective. When I start working for Jesus as opposed to walking with Jesus, when I start giving it all of my attention and all of my time and all of my energy, even a church can become an idol if you're not careful. So how can we identify an idol? How can I know if I've allowed myself to be taken captive by an idol? How can I know when I've allowed a good thing to become a little G-God thing? Mark Batterson wrote a series of idol identifiers. I have found them to be very helpful. They're not in your outline, so just listen as we walk through this. I'm going to ask you some questions to help you identify idols. Number one, what consumes your thoughts? Your daydreams are great idol clues. If you are thinking about something more than you're thinking about God, it has the potential to become an idol very, very quickly. Secondly, what bad habits do you struggle with? Your addictions are idol clues. An idol is something that, control, that you don't control. It controls you. So what bad habits do you struggle with? Thirdly, what do you spend too much money on? Your spending habits are idle clues. Because the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Fourthly, what produces your strongest emotions? Your intense emotions are idle clues. If you want to identify an idol, all you need to do is look at what has your emotional attention. Most of the time, it's probably pointing towards an idol. I received a letter from a 20-something-year-old from Christ the King not too long ago. It was amazingly honest. It said this. It started out small. So small, I didn't even think it mattered. It was just a video game. Fun with the guys. Lots of laughter, but I'm not laughing anymore. My small outlet turned into a full-blown obsession. Up to 20 hours a day, competing, challenging, transforming. I lost my job my girlfriend, and my mind. No, seriously, I ended up in a mental health facility. I couldn't control it. It owned me. Now, before you judge, you think about this. How many of us in the room, Bellingham and Ferndale, could relate if I simply changed the word video game to my career? Idolatry is subtle, my friends, and it's deadly. How else can you identify an idol? Well, I believe you can identify an idol by knowing what an idol demands. An idol demands repetitious contact. If you find yourself going back to something over and over again for comfort or to avoid problems or to hide out emotionally so you don't have to deal with the word or world, or to, to numb the pain, or to gain acceptance. If you have to go back to it over and over and over again to get these needs met, it could be an idol. If something in your life demands large amounts of time, it could be an idol. If you're so involved in something that you lose track of time, or you're resentful when somebody calls you away from it, and then you're angry at them, because they actually want some of your attention placed in a different way. I mean, if they're frustrated with you because you can never ever lay that thing down, it could be an idol. Video games, Facebook, polishing your truck. I mean, it could be all different kinds of things. But if you start getting ticked when people are calling you away for something because you're absolutely consumed with it, it could be an idol. 
If something constantly demands your personal attention, if you and only you have to be involved in it in order for it to feel right, then it could be an idol. If whatever it is demands control, if it controls your schedule, if it controls your mood, if you get to do it, you're happy. If you don't, you're sad. If it controls your availability, if it controls your availability and ability to actually be able to go out and work, if it controls your physical appearance or your proximity with other believers, it could be an idol. I'm seeing some connections starting to be made in the room. Don't be a coward and run from them right now, okay? Stick with me. If it demands an emotional, emotional response, if you only feel good or fulfilled when you're doing it, whatever it is, or pursuing it, then it could be an idol. And finally, an idol always demands a payment. There's a cost. The cost could be guilt. It could be shame. It could be the loss of a relationship or the loss of your identity. It could be the loss of your time. No idea. But if it demands the payment of a part of your life, it could be an idol. There's one more piece that can help us identify idols. And it comes in this little truth. An idol is always surrounded by excuses and rationalizations. If you find yourself having to create excuses for its existence in your life, it's probably an idol. Listen to Aaron's explanation to Moses about how the calf got there. Moses up on the mountain, he comes down. People of Israel, worshiping a calf. And here's Aaron's explanation. So I told him, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out walked this calf. Straight out of scripture. Seriously. Out came this calf. You know, that little statement is no different than I can quit anytime I want to. Or you just don't understand how important this is to me. Or it's not that big of a deal. Or I'm not an alcoholic. Or I'm not a workaholic. Or my life doesn't really revolve around this thing. I just really, really like it. Got quiet in here. Let's talk about some modern day idols. Because we call our golden calves by different things, but they're still there. What the God of materialism? A common idol is stuff. And the reality is in our culture, we simply want more. So we pursue that new truck, that new office, that new gizmo. We like it because we like the way it feels when people see that we have it. Now I want you to understand, stuff is not bad. But when the pursuit of stuff consumes us, it's an idol. I mean, I want you to think about one of the greatest ironies of all time. There's a little phrase written on your currency. It says, in God we... And yet, think about this. When we have a lot of that in our hands, that's the moment when we're tempted, tempted to not trust God. Because when I'm loaded, who needs Jesus? I'm fine. My God's my ATM. I don't need anything. When our stuff becomes our security, we've forgotten the words of Luke 12 when Jesus said this, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
I don't care how big your pile is. When you die, you're gone, and it's not going with you. Secondly, how about the God of success? This God is also known as the God of winning. This is the God that sends us scrambling up the corporate ladder and demands more while actually knowing for us more is never enough. It's just never enough for us. Luke chapter 14, the Bible says this, For all this who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The world of success revolves around pride. Look at me. Look what I can do. Look how high up the ladder I've gone. And God says, you need to know this. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thirdly, how about the God of identity? This is a sneaky one. Because this God masks itself as a good thing. It can be fleshed out in the pursuit of the perfect body or a nice outward appearance. I mean, I'm just going to tell you straight out, working out is not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Until it becomes a narcissistic obsession that that promotes self as the ultimate package. I mean, I enjoy running. I'm back on the ground again, pounding out miles, getting ready thinking about doing another marathon. It's insanity, but, you know, let's give it another shot. Why not, right? So I'm out on my treadmill, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago. P90X, you know, here we go, right? I'm working on that, but believe me, it's not because I've got some divine illusion that I'm going to turn into this muscle-bound, I mean, I'm just a skinny scrawny. That's just the way it's going to be, right? The Bible says our identity is not to be wrapped up in our physical appearance. It's to be wrapped up in Christ. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the right identity. How about this next one, the God of relationships? When you have to be in a relationship in order to feel whole, that relationship is an idol. When a person becomes the object of your worship and adoration, that's idolatry. We have a craving for relationships, but when our desire for earthly relationships eclipses our desire to have a great relationship with our Heavenly Father, in that moment, that quest to be accepted has become an idol. The Apostle Paul talked about the most important relationship that anyone could ever know. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Your primary relationship has to be your main focus. And that's what allows you to be healthy in every other relationship. And finally, how about the God of intellect? The idol of human intellect has exalted itself for centuries. We pride ourselves as human beings in being very, very smart. The truth is, is this. Sometimes we're so smart, we're stupid. Because we actually think we're smarter than God. So we try to outwit Him with our glorious arguments as to why we exist and He does not. Romans 1.25, this is not a new one. It's been around for centuries. The Roman civilization partnered with the Greek civilization. They were known as the greatest thinkers of all time. And the Apostle Paul said this, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Did you notice how blurry the line gets on this stuff? There's nothing wrong with having stuff. The question is, does the stuff have you? There's nothing wrong with success as long as the honor and the credit goes to the right source. 
There's nothing wrong with working out, but when your pursuit of perfection begins to steal your soul, it's an idol. There's nothing wrong with relationships as long as you have your primary relationship in the primary focus of your life. There's nothing wrong with intellect as long as you know you are never smarter than God. So let's get practical. I mean, how do you deal with them? Because if you've listened to me so far, you're probably starting to think that I'm trying to make a point. You're right. The point is this. All of us, including me, have a heart, and our hearts are idol factories. And sometimes when God seems distant, we start creating functional saviors that'll fill in the vacuum and the loneliness and all the little spaces. So what do we do? What do we do? How do I work on, how do I deal with an idol? Let me give you some suggestions from Scripture. Number one is this, be proactive and don't build the altar. Don't build the altar. An idol sits on an altar, so if you don't want an idol to take a prominent place in your life, don't build it. Don't set the first couple of bricks in place. I hear this story over and over again. It's so unbelievably tragic. Somebody says, I started out with just an innocent little flirtation on Facebook, and then it turned into a heartfelt conversation that led me to having my needs met by the wrong person, which led to a secret relationship that inevitably ended up in an encounter, and now it's devastated my family and my marriage, and I don't know what to do. You know how you keep that idol from being there? You don't press send. You don't go to those relationships to get your emotional needs met. You stop before the first brick goes into place. The Bible says we reap what we sow. If you don't want to get sucked into that, the God of, of identity and getting pulled up the corporate ladder, before you even start to pursue that promotion, don't lay the brick of pride down. Because if you lay the brick of pride down, God actually says he'll oppose you. You know why? Because he knows how devastating pride is. Be proactive and don't build the altar. I wonder how different this story would have been if Aaron hadn't laid the first brick. What if he'd had the courage to stand up and say, excuse me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You take your cow and get it out of here. Because I don't worship golden images that try to take the place of my Savior. Secondly, you got to see it, shred it, and crush it. I love the fact Moses doesn't mess with the idol. He tears it down. He crushes it. In fact, if you read the scripture, he grinds it up and he makes the people of Israel drink it. That's pretty blunt, right? Here you go. Suck this down. This thing is never going to have its form again. You're going to digest your own sin. That's pretty blunt, right? Pretty blunt. He moves fast and decisively and the lesson is clear. Don't mess with the idols. Deal with them. Some of you may need to go home today and shred an idol that's in the middle of your house right now. I'm not saying what it is. That's between you and God. You may be involved in an ungodly relationship and you need to break it off today. Because if you leave it alone and don't deal with it swiftly, you're going to find a way to excuse and rationalize it. I promise you. Been there, done that. Thirdly, you need to replace the space with a renewed commitment to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 15 verses or so, they keep pleading to people with this truth. 
It's not always the idol that has a grip on us. It's our grip on the idol that needs to be loosened. The idol leaves a void. And when it's gone, it's got to be filled with the grace of God or it's going to be replaced by something else. Tim Keller's got a beautiful little book called Counterfeit Gods. I can't recommend it highly enough. And he says this, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. It's got to be torn down, and then that void that's left behind has got to be filled with an ever-increasing love of Jesus Christ, or the idol's going to grow back, usually bigger. Finally, we need to seek forgiveness and cleansing. The Bible says Moses dealt with it, called it what it was. That's an idol. And then the people slowly got it and the relationship was restored. So I'm going to ask you to do something incredibly courageous right now, Bellingham and at Ferndale. Whatever has been running through your mind for the last 26 minutes, write it down right now. Write it out. Because if you don't, it's going to crawl back into the recesses of your mind and you're going to find another way to avoid having to deal with it. God's been calling out my idols all week long. I've got a journal full of them. Write it down right now. Just put it down. I know what it is. That's my idol. When we've named it, we ask God to cleanse it, to cleanse us of the desire to pursue it, and ask that he would allow us to pursue him. This is deep internal work. You don't get to do it on the surface. This is hard work on the road out. I want you to notice a final piece here in dealing with this internal idol. I want you to notice this. People have been doing this for centuries. The prophet Ezekiel, thousands of years ago, said this. He said, some of the elders of Israel came to me and they sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. Listen to what God says. When we come and we name it, this is his response. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who deserted me for their idols. Do you know why God wants you to name your idol? It's because he wants to tear it down so he can recapture your heart. He loves you too much to allow that thing to sit in the center of your soul. And he says, you bring it to me and I'll shred that thing for you. And I'll recapture your heart. So let's take just a moment and come to God quietly in silence and name our idol and ask God to cleanse us of the desire for it. Let's have some personal dealing with God right now. Let's pray. Every head bowed, 
every eye closed, nobody moving around. Let's give God our full attention as he recaptures our heart. Father God, would you show it to us? Would you give us the courage to deal with it? Would you tear it down once and for all, and would you allow us to participate? God, give us wisdom to see the good things that we've allowed to become little g God things. Father, would you give us the courage to go after the bad ones that we know are there? Would you recapture our hearts and set us free? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes it's nice to know there's a payoff for doing God's work. Okay, don't, don't lose me. Stick with me right here. Sometimes there's something amazing about finding out what the payoff is for a life that has no idols in it. Exodus 32, you see the golden calf. Exodus 33, God paints a beautiful little picture and uses Moses' life to show us how beautiful it is to have a life that's free from idols. Let me read it to you in Exodus 33. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they would all stand and worship, each at the entrance of their own tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. When the idols are gone, that's possible. If it doesn't feel like God can hear you, if it feels like you pray and the requests fall right back into your lap, it could very well be that there's an idol in the way. The Bible says, if we will pursue with all of our hearts the removal of all of the idols, that this is the beautiful outcome. That we would sit face to face with God. And that he'd speak to us like a man speaks to his best friend. That's the reward for doing this hard work on the road out. Let's pursue it with everything we have. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, I know that I'm very tempted when talking of idols in my life to look on the surface but not down deep. Father, I pray that we wouldn't get hung up on, on the little surfacey stuff, that we would go deep to the deep issues in our soul. And then we'd be honest with you about the idolatry in our own lives. God, I thank you that this is not about football. But Lord, I thank you that it could be if that's what's in the way. So Father, whatever it is, pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know and to call it out. Because God is the people of Christ the King. 
we don't want to serve golden calves. We want you to have our full and undivided attention. We want to give it all to you, nothing in the way. Nothing breaking up the conversations or calling for our attention to distract us from you. Lord, we want to give everything we can, all of our hearts from the inside out. So Lord, would you put your finger on it and may you deal with it so that we can be free to cultivate a beautiful relationship with you. We give ourselves to Almighty God and not the functional saviors of this world. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' precious, holy, and idol-crushing name, all of God's people agreed together and said, Amen. Amen.